Welcome to the Cybersecurity and Cloud Podcast, where we hear the stories of information security professionals. This podcast explores different angles, out-of-the-box ideas, and the human element of cybersecurity. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts and supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP so we can continue to bring on amazing guests. You can watch videos of the interviews at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. In this episode, we talk with Lisa Ford, a friend, an inspiration, and a fantastic social engineer. For who doesn't know, social engineering is the whole art of exploiting the human vulnerability, the human factor through gathering trust, getting somebody to trust you and to give information of something you shouldn't be doing. And Lisa has rose through the rank of police, so she has learned a lot from that experience and brought that amazing information to the private sector, helping now organization defend themselves. This episode is particularly long, so we divided it in two parts, and I hope you don't mind, but I wanted to preserve all the fantastic information we discussed through. I hope you enjoy Lisa Forte on the show. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Hello. Very good. Thank you. How are you? I'm all right. I'm all right. Thank you for joining us today in these wonderful and sunny days. We have scorching heat in, in England, and apparently Heathrow was the hottest point of all yesterday, surprisingly. So, Lisa, how are you doing you today? Hot, but otherwise <laughs> fine. <laughs> I don't think I could have more fans in my house if I tried, to be honest. I'm surprised my electricity is still going, so that's good. Is the sun trying to social engineer you? <laughs> <laughs> Just oppress me, I think, more than anything else. That should be a technique, right? <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe I'll work on that. <laughs> That's great. So for all the listener and all the, the speaker in the call, uh, do you want to give us a quick uh, overview of who you are? Then I introduce myself and then we crack on with the exciting stuff of today, of social engineering, the topic today. Yeah, sure. Um, so my name is Lisa Forte. I'm a partner at Red Goat Cybersecurity. Um, prior to starting my company, which uh, specializes in the human side of, of cybersecurity and uh, insider threats and things like this. Um, but before that, I, uh, I worked for one of the police cybercrime units and um, also in counterterrorism intelligence in the UK. Um, so I got quite a good experience of, uh, of its security issues and, and the really important role that humans play in security at all points. Um, and so that's sort of who I am. And I speak around the world at conferences as well um, and conduct a load of research on, on different topics. Um, and I just uh, very excited to be here and talk to you all. Excited to have you here. And I don't think we ever met. I mean, we only we only touch base at certain points, but we actually never met at one of the conference. And probably uh, there will be there will be one that we all meet. Uh, and that's that me, my, your host. I'm Francesco Cipollone. I'm doing this as part of a mini project that started with Tanya Janka. Uh, I think 
six months down the line now, where we started doing this, you know, this mentoring Monday thing where we try to share knowledge and trying to get people involved and, and, and showing how, how to do things right. And then I'm doing these uh, interviews as part of uh, showing what's right and how to do things right and how our industry leaders are doing things right. So on the first subject, what is social engineering, Lisa? Um, social engineering is, is probably something you've all been exposed to because at the very least, you'll have probably experienced somebody uh, in your life who's tried to get you to do something without just outright asking you to do it. Um, this may even be a child who wants uh, to buy a, a chocolate for them at a supermarket or something and they really, really need it. Um, children are excellent at social engineering, by the way. They're absolute masters. Um, so essentially, um, in terms of a definition, social engineering is the use of deception to manipulate people into doing something that initially appears fine, appears benign, um, but is actually malicious to compromise the company. So you'll often see this with phishing emails pretending to be from, say, Amazon, or um, you may have also heard of situations where people uh, fall in love online and, uh, and get manipulated into sending all their money um, to some other bank account. All of this sort of thing is social engineering. All right, great. And so I should be aware of the kids down the street trying to sell me candies or ask for me, ask for candies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very and cautious if, of them. <laughs> if, I do, if I do that, if I do that, I should be safe, right? <laughs> well, maybe safer. <laughs> but no, if uh, I think you touch on on quite a few social points, I think. From all the all the industry that I'm seeing, uh, I'm seeing more and more of social engineering and and the control that we have in place at the number of organizations I'm working with. I think they're quite tough and the, the weakest link remain the human. Hence, why I guess uh, the social engineering will be picking well is picking up as a theme and as a topic. Would you agree? Yeah, and I think the reason why we're seeing cyber attackers use this and, and we're seeing such a growth in this as an attack vector is because, you know, companies have, you know, developed better technical controls um, and ultimately it's much quicker and easier for an attacker to send a message to Bob in accounting than it is for them to spend months trying to bypass some sort of technical control that's in place. Um, and ultimately for the vast majority of attackers, they want a return on investment because they're running a business. Um, so when you start to view it a bit like that, it makes sort of complete sense in a way. So if you if you, you mentioned the Roman scam, uh, you mentioned email phishing and targeting and targeting phishing, uh, you mentioned children. <laughs> so <laughs> which one, which one, excluding the children, because otherwise we're going to get banned, <laughs> is, is more effective form of social engineering that you see in those days? Um, I would say the two most common things that I see are phishing emails, but also um, uh, sort of malicious messages sent through social media platforms, so direct messages in Facebook or Twitter. Um, but then the other one that we see a lot of is something called vishing, which is where um, attackers call up the company, um, start to try and elicit some intelligence or reconnaissance on the company through having conversations with staff. Um, and again, this this can be a really big problem as well because um, staff often, you know, we want to have that customer service mentality. Um, so we hand over all this information, but sometimes the person on the end of the phone 
you know, that person shouldn't have any information. Um, and that's kind of what they rely on. So you're saying fundamentally trying to be a bit more, well, the human being is actually trust, trust uh, the other human being by nature. So being a little bit less trustworthy as a, uh, effectively as a, as a defense mechanism for the whole organization. Yeah, I think just sort of having that mindset where you pause and you think about it and you think, you know, does this sound right? Does this sound legitimate? Should I be handing this information out? Um, and hopefully that should stop, you know, at least some of the attacks that are sort of targeted at you. Um, because to be honest, you know, most of us are likely at some point to be a target of this. In fact, almost everybody who works for a company at some point will have an attempt on them to, to socially engineer them. So I think it's really important to recognize that none of us are immune from this. So we've got to be, you know, thinking about it very carefully. So picking on that topic, how many social engineer calls or texts are you receiving per day? <laughs> God knows. Maybe this is one. I don't know. Maybe you've got me <laughs> onto a podcast to socially engineer me and get information out. Okay. <laughs> we create a new podcast, a social engineering podcast. Please don't come on this podcast if you don't want to share information. <laughs> <laughs> that could be a scam the scammer. Actually, no, I think I think Stu was running this camera. This camera was asking him if um, if he recorded some of the session because they were hilarious. The one we, we did we did together, some of them we did together, and I and I given him few cases of okay, this is an interesting chapter. He's trying to contact me. Please have some fun. <laughs> oh God. <laughs> but how how do you think? What's your opinion on scam the scammer on on or hack back the the people that are trying to attack you or trying to steal some information from you. Have you experienced that or has any of your client actually say, well, I really, really want to get back to this guy. Help me doing that. What's, what's um, the line? I, my personal feeling is that if we start to go down the route of hacking back, um, we are treading a very, very dangerous line. Um, and the reason for that is at the moment, for the vast, vast majority of companies, really accurate attribution is very difficult. So unless you were pretty certain, almost 100% certain who it was who had attacked you, um, you could be launching attacks against people who you'd got wrong. And uh, you would therefore be attacking them and then they would go and attack somebody else and so on and so forth. Um, so one of the uh, one guy that I, uh, I came across at a conference once described it as everybody wandering around in the dark, throwing punches and hoping they hit the right person in the face. And, you know, I, I don't think that's something that at the moment we, we have enough knowledge and intelligence on that we can really do that without risking causing an awful lot more damage. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think it's really difficult and sometimes illegal, not to mention a few of the things to act that back. And I think even even just doing forensic and, and capturing a, a right timeline from an organization is, is difficult nowadays. I mean, yeah. having the right information in forensic that you can use in court is already very challenging. So I would, I would rather focus on that, uh, teaching the organization to, to capture rightfully and the right amount of information so that they can build up a case in court. I don't think I don't think I've ever I have seen till now anything around that. 
uh, as as formal training, with the exception of uh, I think, well, there were a couple of trainings around e forensics. But aside from that, how many cases of phishing, vishing, and all this stuff have you seen it landing in court? Actually, um, I think that the, the problem with it is that you, you do see quite a lot of cyber cases going to court, but the, the context in which they go to court is tends to be that the individuals who have had their data stolen sue the company that was hacked. Um, and that's how it ends up in court. The, the situation with regards to law enforcement, and obviously I'm ex-law enforcement, so I do know kind of a bit about how this works, that you know there, there are two fundamental problems that law enforcement in Europe and the United Kingdom have. The first is that they have a huge problem with reporting. People just do not report they've been attacked because they want to keep it secret. They don't want their share price to drop, so they just don't report it at all. The second problem is in the situations where it is reported, the cases that the police get some sort of um, sort of justice from it or find a target, find the, you know, the defendant, um, that defendant is usually a teenage kid whose OPSEC has been a little below par and, uh, and they've been discovered for those reasons. Um, so really, I think the problem is usually when we see crimes starting to take off, we rely on the courts and the judiciary to to help sort of create law, if you like, on the topic and, and clarity on that. But we're not really getting cases that are landing in the courts because of those two things. Um, so it's a really, really difficult problem. No, thanks, thanks for the review. I think the law enforcement perspective is is absolutely critical and, and something that I, I don't normally see because unless you work in it you don't see the other side of, of the case and the struggle hey francesco here a very quick message from our sponsor and then we return back this podcast is brought to you by the generosity of nsc42 limited your cybersecurity partner cybersecurity is complex and different for every organization and you need the best tailored service to make sure your customer's data is safe and sound so you can focus on what's important, focusing on your clients and bringing the best and safest experience. NSC42 Limited can help you during your cloud transformation, cybersecurity assessment for your compliance checklist on-premise and on the cloud. Want to know more? Visit www.nsc42.co.uk to get your free quote. From your time on law enforcement, uh, how was the triage and the selection of cases? Was it very different from the normal triage that the police does? Um, yeah, it really was, because what you've got to um, sort of realise with police in general across the world is that, you know, cyber is really, really new. And the problem that cyber has is that if you imagine that you finished listening to this podcast and you decided to go to the nearest bank, walk in there and rob it, the chances are you might leave fingerprints, there might be CCTV, there might be um, you know, mobile phone data that could be collected, witnesses, lots and lots of what we call lines of inquiry that the police can use to identify who you were. But if you get off this podcast and go and attack a bank um, you know, across cyberspace, there are no witnesses, there's no fingerprints, there's no CCTV, um, you know, all of that, all of those lines of inquiry immediately shut down. And what you, what we tended to find was um, that, you know, people would be sitting behind VPNs that claimed 
they either didn't keep logs at all or were in a jurisdiction where we couldn't force them to hand over their logs. Um, and that was basically the end of uh, end of the investigation for a lot of it. Um, and I think it's a real, real challenge for law enforcement because it requires them to adapt um, an awful lot, really. So how about, that may be controversial, and just before I start on that, we're not inviting anyone at the end of this post- podcast to go and rob a bank, either physically or <laughs> <laughs> Just as a disclaimer, because, you know, infosec drama, and you never know how these things end. Just yeah, that wasn't, that wasn't a call to action, okay? That, that was... <laughs> We're not inviting anyone to rob a bank, <laughs> period. <laughs> Let's leave it at that. But aside from that, um, let me uh, actually be a little bit controversial. Have you ever discussed in, in law enforcement on the probation element of it? So if you find any of these teenage kids that actually are, is, is attacking or attacking back, have you ever recruited some of them to actually help the police to actually trace it back? Because if you say BPN, I mean, when it dropped down, uh, you don't have evidence and the, the, the trail goes cold and it's, the investigation stops there. Have you ever seen cases where police has collaborated externally with those individuals and, and being successful or not? Um, I know that when I was just about to leave they were looking into how that could work the problem you have is that generally the hacking community are very anti-establishment and they are often not very keen on collaborating with law enforcement to effectively rat out um, other people in their community which you know is to some degree understandable um, I think the other problem that law enforcement have is, um, and it's and it's the same sort of problem that um, some of the police departments that look at um, sort of sex offenders have in the same way, is that a lot of these um, communities communicate on heavily, heavily vetted forums. And access to these forums, um, as you'll probably know, are not, it's not open, you know, that in order to get access, you need to prove that you have hacked into a company or that you can provide access into a network or, you know, in the case of um, sort of child sexual exploitation, they ask you to upload images um, to prove that you are who you say you are. And sort of ethically, from a police's perspective, as you can imagine, you just can't do that. So automatically you're presented with a really difficult problem and um, it's difficult to know how far we would even want our police to go in order to get access to those sorts of forums. So, how, how about how about treading the fine line? And yeah, as Chinese dangerous dictionary, there are issues and forensic is a big issue as she's stating. How about treading the fine line of somebody else doing it on behalf of the police or lurking in the gray area. And I know at least few organizations that are creating fake and reputable profile that the police can use and index and, and seek, uh, at least search in, if you want in the dark web or in certain profile, because they will give useful intelligence, at, at least being in, in those communities. Yeah, I think this is probably less um, less of a thing for the police because, generally speaking, the police, certainly in the UK, there's something called policing by consent, and it's the idea that, you know, the police serve the communities that they're in and, and so on and so forth. So I think this is perhaps more something that the intelligence services 
would be more equipped to get into. I think the police tend to try and stay away as much as they can from anything that could call into question um, their sort of clean moral standards on, on, you know, on sort of exacting justice or, or whatever you want to call it. So uh, I, I, I personally have no experience of that being used. I'm not saying that no police force around the world doesn't, you know, employ those tactics, but um, I can see that there would be some very difficult conversations and difficult explanations that would have to happen in order for that to, to even stand a chance of getting off the ground. Yeah, that's interesting. That's definitely interesting. It's, it's fine line and who's actually responsible of, of the intelligence, if it's police or if it's a body behind the police. It's definitely the police in this country has a very high reputation on, on, on being friendly. Yeah, for sure, definitely. It's really important to them. And Robert is asking anyone for multi-jurisdictional crowd forensic. <laughs> I think you're asking a bomb in there. <laughs> I think even one jurisdiction is 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 challenging. Doing it multi-jurisdictional and what you can share and what you can't share. Even even just going across the pond between UK and Germany. Do you have experience with that, uh, Lisa? Um, uh, well, uh, UK and EU police forces work very, very closely together. Um, there's a lot of information sharing and collaboration. Um, that is slightly less so with the UK and the US. There are more uh, difficult rules and regulations with regards to working closely. Um, but for sure, there's a lot of very unfriendly jurisdictions to UK law enforcement that don't want to cooperate. Um, and similarly, we would not cooperate necessarily back with them either. Um, so I think this is the big, big problem of cyber because cyber isn't jurisdictional. It's it's a global issue. And as you know, if you look at things like WannaCry, it impacted com companies in almost every single country of the world, right? Um, mm. So you need suddenly this huge collaboration between investigative forces in all those countries, which has literally never happened ever in the history of law enforcement. Um, and so we're lagging behind a little bit. <laughs> so are we aiming to create a Uber police or the UN is stepping in? Or I, I know there is a forum for the UN for, for this stuff, but I think it's all aspirational. I don't think there is actually a body that is entitled to actually override. Like in US, you have the FBI that they can, they can override, override the various states, but I don't think we have a global police. Maybe no. we need a global police. No, but, you know, I mean, this hasn't happened with terrorism. Um, I don't think it will happen with cyber because I think the sovereignty of each country, you know, we're never going to agree on how things should be done because we all have so many differences. So, um, yeah, I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. Yeah, and Interpol and Europol are probably the, the, the closest thing we can have, as, as Robert's saying. Yeah, totally. So Ivano is asking a very interesting question. So what would be the best country to launch a social engineering attack from, Lisa, in your, in your opinion? Um, well, social engineering or, or cyber, basically anything to, I would say, it depends who you want to attack would be my first question. Because um, if you were wanting to attack companies in the UK, then some countries that I would say would be fairly favorable to you might be ones like uh, Russia, or China, or uh, Brazil, interestingly, where there's a lot of it, there was a lot of attacks a few years ago coming from Brazil, 
Um, basically anywhere where if UK police said to that government, we want you to force this company to uh, reveal their logs, that, that that government might laugh at our police, then that would be a good country for you to uh, to go and base yourself in probably. <laughs> Yeah, I think it will be difficult but, uh, to attack from North Korea, as Robert is saying, <laughs> unless you have a shell in North Korea. <laughs> yeah, and I think you'd probably struggle for maybe like connectivity and bandwidth maybe in North Korea. But, you know, wherever, maybe, never we'll, know. Write, maybe we'll write a travel guide later on in our careers of, of the hotspots, but until then. Hotspot for social engineering. Here you go. Uh, book yeah. for retirement from Lisa. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The travel guide of the social engineer, the best country to visit from yours and your <laughs> least. <laughs> I'm sure my parents would be so proud. So proud, absolutely. <laughs> so on maybe we, we, we haven't touched a little bit on, on how to do social engineering. So aside from aside from all the tactics, so which one are the, the the most exploitable tactics and then maybe we can we can jump on few stories that you have that you can share yeah sure so i think one of the first things to understand about social engineering is that if i um called you up for example and i and i wanted to get some information out of you i'm going to want to be really really nice really really charming to you um, ideally, I would also have done some research on you as an individual, so I might find out what you might like. So let's say that you really enjoy going to, I don't know, track days where you race your Honda Civic, let's say. So I might say, oh, you never guess what? I did a track day the other day, and um, yeah, this guy had this Honda Civic. It was amazing. I'm thinking of buying one. And you'll be like, oh, yes, yes, I've got a Honda Civic. Oh, well, let me tell you about them. Instantly. I've built some rapport with you and you're thinking, what a nice lady. Brilliant. We've got so much in common. Let me talk to her. I can trust her. So then when I say to you, I don't suppose you can tell me um, who the head of your IT team is because I need to call him up and what his email address is. You are so much more likely just to hand that over to me. If I call you up out the blue and just demand that you give that to me, you're more likely to think, mm, okay, maybe I won't hand that over. So one thing that's really crucial to social engineering, and when I'm doing social engineering uh, you know, to test companies, um, it's the same thing, and that is open source intelligence. Research on your target is absolutely vital. So can we actually use social engineering to teach salespeople not to do cold call? <laughs> <laughs> maybe that's a gap in the market for me. Yeah, no, I was thinking the other day, maybe social engineering is just, just psychological being nice to other people. Maybe we can use it for good. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But Ivan was asking uh, if you can elaborate a little bit more on the, the psychological aspect of making social engineering so successful. Um, so there's a a very famous psychologist called uh, Robert Cialdini, and he is, created um, what we now know as the six principles of persuasion. And these are the sorts of things that, um, that will persuade almost anybody. Because what you've got to remember is we all look different. We have different likes, different dislikes. But ultimately, we're operating on the same hardware, right? We, we all have the same types of uh, vulnerabilities to biases and, and other things. So... Some of the principles of persuasion that work really well are things such as the principle of authority. 
So pretending that you are someone who has an authoritative position, maybe you are pretending to be the boss of a big company, asking one of the employees to do something for you, or you're pretending to be a police officer saying that you've got a parking sign. Another principle that works really well is reciprocity. Um, and one of the ways I explain how this works is uh, if you imagine that you work for a company and at the front of the company, you have uh, a door and this door is unlocked. The next door in is a locked door. You need a key pass to enter it. So I'm loitering around hoping to gain access physically into the building with, you know, when I shouldn't have. And I see an employee walking towards the first door, which is unlocked. I walk just a little bit ahead of them and I open the unlocked door for them and hold it. They walk through. They approached the locked door. What do you think they are now about to do? Mimic. They are going like to reciprocate. Monkey. Exactly. They're going to reciprocate. They're going to open the locked door and they're going to hold that door open for me to walk through. So it's about understanding with social engineering. The, these sorts of things work really well across the board in almost every country because this is the sort of thing that we respond to. Our culture um, has brought us up to, you know, return the favor has always been something we've always been taught, right? So, you know, these sorts of things work really, really well. So it's, uh, he's got a book. I really recommend you checking it out and reading it because it's not about cybersecurity, but um, it's just such a great holiday read. I really recommend it. Um, and it and it will show you a bit about the, the sorts of things you're vulnerable to, I think. So on this, uh, it's great. It's good. I actually haven't read it and, and I need to. Thank you for the, for the reading for, for the summer. You're <laughs> in summer, right? It's, it's hot enough to, to, to call it summer. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> so on on these stories, can you can you actually give us an example on on each of these points, like on the proceed uh, on on replicating a behavior or being nice to everybody, stories that you, you encounter? And I'll ask also a follow up question that is a little bit a little bit controversial. <laughs> Again, a woman. <laughs> um, yes, I am the controversial guy. So you should know it by now. <laughs> Um, a woman more successful in social engineering than men? Answer that first. I think personally, yes, because certainly I think that there is a perception, wrongful perception, but a perception nonetheless, that women are less likely to be criminals um, and are less likely to be dangerous. So as I'm a really short blonde woman, so I'm pretty much the least intimidating looking person you'll ever encounter. And I find that people just hold doors open for me. They'll, sh they'll show me up to whichever room I ask to go into um, without thinking that I'm dodgy at all. I don't look, apparently look dodgy at all, which is great. But also on the phone, I think, um, you know, often people think, oh, you know, there's no way this woman is going to be malicious. I, my guard is down. Whether that's right or wrong, I don't, you know, uh, I'm not going to, to venture into that. Um, I'm sure women commit crime as well as men, as much as men, maybe. Um, but for whatever reason, we seem less intimidating. So to all the women who are listening, 
you know, that's a powerful, powerful tool we have. <laughs> so be less intimidating, be a woman, you have a career. <laughs> Here you go, message, <laughs> message yeah. for the guys. Well, you don't yeah. him, just hire short, short, <laughs> short, long woman, and you have a, a perfect social engineering team. We're a powerful force. This is your host, Francesca. Thank you for coming in, listening, participating in the podcast, asking the question and having fun with us. We're going to continue the story with Lisa with a few of the social engineer stories that she has and some other fun uh, stories. I hope you enjoy and stay tuned for the second part. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, consider leaving us a review or sponsoring us on Patreon. It helps us bring on amazing guests and keep the podcast alive and free. Consider supporting us at www.patreon.com forward slash CSCP and watch other episodes at www.cybercloudpodcast.com. Mm-hmm.